What's up, Godspeak? Pastor Micah here, introducing Fireside Chat episode 152. We had an awesome time this morning here at church. We had three services, 9, 11, and 1, and everyone that showed up, we were here ready to worship, and it was a blast. While we were here worshiping, Charlie Kirk was at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. And so tonight, it was such an awesome, uh, awesome service that he did there. Tonight, we thought it would be really cool if you guys got to experience that as well. So they, uh, over at, at uh, Calvary Chapel Signal Hill, they were gracious enough to let us borrow that video. So we were going to air that tonight, and you get to see that service and Charlie Kirk there. So without further ado, uh, sit back, relax, and watch this uh, Charlie Kirk at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. Well, good morning, folks. So um, I know you guys were expecting Charlie to be here, but change of plan. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Ah, Look at your heart sink. Oh, that's funny. Ah, I've got you guys. I got you. Okay, so uh, just a couple of uh, housekeeping items that I want to mention before I ask Charlie to come on out. Um, Number one, when we transition from second to third service, I am asking Charlie, and I look, he doesn't like this. He likes to talk to people, but I'm asking him to go right back into my office when service is finished, and I'll tell you why. We're doing it out of consideration for all the other people that are coming from second to third service. It's so crowded, and it's so crazy that we need you guys, as soon as service is over, to go get your kids and, um, and head on out so the third service crowd can come in. Now, don't feel like you got ripped off because the third service crowd is going to be told the same thing because the second we're done, we are shuttling down to the 412 church in San Hagueto. I mean, San Jacinto, sorry. And... Um, <laughs> I love that place, by the way, except the crazy heat. Um, so, uh, so we're going to do the same thing, okay? So that's the first thing. Um, and then the other thing that I just uh, would like to just make very, very clear as we spend time together and do this is the fact that when we have our Q&A, and I'll, I'll remind it again, where I'm, I'll, I'll repeat myself, no statements when the Q&A is made. So you're going to have some time to think about your questions. Think about how to get it out to us as fast as you can. Because if you go beyond a certain time, we're going to go shut it down right now. Shut it down. Uh, we did have to do that in, in first service. Not that mean. All right. So with that, um, I, as I introduce Charlie, I just want to say a few things. Many of you guys know him. I mean, literally, I don't think he's a rising star. I think he is a star. I think that God has used him so greatly over the last several years. You saw him open at the RNC. Uh, Charlie is the president and founder of Turning Point USA, uh, which, by the way, is the most powerful organization for the conservative cause on campuses, college campuses. Here's a few things you might not know about Charlie. If you listen to him on a regular basis, you probably do know this about him. But Charlie is an avid student of the Word of God. He loves the word of God and he loves God with all of his heart. And I can tell you that as a pastor who knows the word, Charlie is, is amazing and reminds me in so many ways of the mindset and the heart uh, that, uh, that I had when I was his age, except a lot more sophisticated in many ways um, for him, not me. <laughs> um, and so he is a huge blessing, you guys, and we're going to have a great time. So let's welcome Charlie Kirk.
Charlie, it's good to have you, bro. Yeah, it's good to be here. So, so um, maybe we should talk. Should we talk? I talk for a living, so we could, we'd have to do that. So. <laughs> you know, I, I do want to make a, I want to make mention of something really quickly before we start. But you've got an audience. You're yeah, streaming so audience. I, I want to say watching. hi to our YouTube and Facebook audience, also streaming. So uh, got a couple thousand people also watching at home. So say hi, everybody. So yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. Charlie, there's a lot going on. Yeah, there is. I didn't know that. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, so the last couple of days, I mean, crisscrossing the country, was at the event Thursday evening at the White House, and then I was in Vail, at Montana yesterday, two stops there, and then Vegas, and now we're here. Uh, I love going to churches and talking about why church is essential and salvation is essential and why the church should be open. You have a great pastor here, by the way, that is keeping the church open and is making the case that church is essential. And it's such a blessing to be here and to be able to answer questions and also just talk about what's happening in our country that isn't always talked about in kind of the activist media and kind of dive a level deeper, which I think is really important. Amen and amen. And I got to tell you guys, we, there's no such thing as compartmentalizing our faith, right? And because there's no such thing as that, that's why nothing is off limits, right? We can talk about anything, especially because that's what we're called to do. We're called to get our hands involved in everything. And um, it's been crazy these last few months in our country, Charlie. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It, we, we now realize what happens when you remove church from the public arena. You dive into almost a state of societal chaos. And maybe we should take a step back and realize that maybe it was the church that built this civilization in the first place, which it was. Uh, it was in the 1730s and, 1730s and 1740s. It was the Great Awakening by people such as Jonathan Edwards and, and Whitfield and Wesley that were preaching. The, and it was the most famous sermon ever given in American history, which was sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it was given in the 1730s, which woke up the American people and said, you need to get out of this ritualistic, ritualistic Christianity and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this started in the 30s and early 40s, before the American Revolution, by the way. And it was called the Great Awakening for a reason, because drunkenness and indulgence, indulgence culture was all throughout the colonies, and the church was decaying. And it was really amazing. Benjamin Franklin himself was a deist, but he was an admirer of Whitfield. And all the founding fathers were, in one way or the other, the children of the Great Awakening. And what, when you have a Great Awakening, all of a sudden, people have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're all depraved by nature, this belief in original sin. And then something really interesting happened. A guy named Thomas Paine comes to the colonies, and he says, hey, you guys are all in agreement that people are depraved by nature. No person is greater than the other. They say, yes then why do you think King George is better than you? They say, we don't. Then why don't you start a representative government around these ideas? So then Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense in February of 1776, which is the most important piece of literature that inspired the American Revolution within that window. But it's important to remember that it was the church that built this civilization around first principles. And there was the Second Great Awakening, which was the church also rising up, because we, we, found, we found this amazing country, and then just 10 or 15 years later, we start slipping again. Drug and drunkenness starts to go over, lawlessness in the streets, bank robberies were a daily occurrence, sound familiar? And all of a sudden there was chaos, and the church rose up again in the Second Great Awakening, where Thomas Paine and Voltaire both said in the late 1790s, they thought that the church would be a relic of America. That's how Christianity went from its high point in the 1730s, 60 years later it declined Second Great Awakening, it shot back up. And all of a sudden this resurgence, and you know what came out of the Second Great Awakening? was a repulsion for the sin of slavery, was this idea of all men created equal under the eyes of God. And it's our country 
that actually went forth in the process of eradicating this unspeakable sin. And so then we had the Third Great Awakening in the early 1900s, where post-Civil War, there was this awful there was, there was awful sin throughout our country, as is always the norm, because we're human beings, we're inclined to sin. And the Third Great Awakening really actually spread all the way to the, the, the Asian countries, especially in Korea, where we saw the incredible spreading of the gospel in what is now known as South Korea. And then finally, the Fourth Great Awakening, which came the Billy Graham in the 60s and 70s. And so it's really important that we recognize that it was, it was preachers that went out and were unafraid to preach the gospel, but sometimes in defiance to the culture and to the institutional government. And so look, in the last couple months, we have seen, in my opinion, the church abdicate its role in the public arena to talk about how salvation is essential, talk about what the church's role really should be in this country. And I have been so frustrated and saddened when I have seen Casinos and cannabis dispensaries remain open and churches closed under government mandate and edict. This is immoral. And we're wondering, thank you, and, and we're wondering why is it that one out of four of young people in the last couple months, according to the Center for Disease Control, have contemplated suicide? Why is it that, su that depression and antidepressant medication and marijuana usage and alcoholism is increasing? Well, it's because the fabric that through every one of these great awakenings has proven that has kept this entire gift we've been given together, the church has been silent. The church is not a YouTube live stream. I'm all supportive of YouTube live streams, by the way. We got plenty of people watching. <laughs> but Christ said something very important. Maybe Christ was onto something. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Where he said, build this, on this rock, build my church. What he was saying was ecclesia, church, gathering of believers, right? Which is, there's something very powerful that happens when we gather together as Christians. And I think it's more than just a TED Talk on Facebook Live or on YouTube. And again, I'm not discounting that if there's someone watching this right now. And I, it, it could be very persuasive. However, the actual physical gathering of believers cannot be forsaken. And if all of a sudden you're allowing 70,000 people, like we did two days ago, march in the streets of Washington, D.C., right up against close to each other, and you're trying to say that churches can't have more than 25 people, this is a total and complete persecution of the American church. That's and right. it's time for the church to rise up and not tolerate this anymore. That's right. Yep. Amen. 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 Yeah. So, um, so this is a big deal. And, you know, one of the things I've been noticing, and I know you have been too because you've been talking about it, is how so many things in the culture have been very closely tied to the persecution of churches in the United yes. States. Um, namely, and, I, and it saddens me to say this, but namely the fact that there are lots of pastors that even help to propagate this yeah, sometimes, that's correct. right? Yeah. So, so here's a great example of this, and that is the fact that we'll be silent on abortion, right? We'll be silent about um, the persecution of the church. We'll be silent about all the other, a lot of other major moral things. However, we'll get behind something like Black Lives Matter. And, and look, I want to be very clear before I dive into it. The statement is true, which makes it very hard to criticize. So I call it BLM Incorporated. So I make sure I'm never criticizing a statement that is biblically and theologically and spiritually true. Because all lives matter. I mean, we're Christians and we believe that every life has dignity and value. So I just want to make sure I emphasize that from the outset. But the organization, in a very Orwellian sense, doesn't even stand for the statement that they espouse. I mean, they don't. I mean, on the church's website, it says that they want to destroy the, new, the Western prescribed nuclear family. They want to abolish prisons and abolish police. The BLM Incorporated leader in Chicago says that the, rooting, the looting and the rioting and the arson was reparations on behalf of the black community, which is just such an incredibly perplexing approach to take. I want to be very clear. If we want to have a conversation about 
what we, what we have done wrong towards certain communities, we should have a conversation about how since the passage of Roe versus Wade, there has been a disproportionate amount of black abortions more so than any other in, in the country. If you see a pregnant woman in New York City on the subway, she's much more likely going to Planned Parenthood than the delivery room. The abortion rate in New York City for black women is higher than the birth rate. Abortion has now become a form of birth control. This is why the black population has flatlined since Roe versus Wade. The founder of Planned Parenthood, a eugenicist, Margaret Sanger, literally believed in this. I mean, if you wanted the flatlining and the deterioration of black population growth, then you would have, be a huge advocate of this. But also, I think we need to also talk about how, and, and I, I'm, I'm very upset about this because this war on law enforcement is completely, it's dangerous, it's malevolent, it's pernicious, and it's also, it's not rooted in truth. Now, of course, there's law enforcement officers that should be held accountable and they abuse that power. I don't know any decent or reasonable people that doesn't believe that, doesn't believe that. There's people in all industries that should be held accountable. And I think that we all, because we're human beings and we're flawed by nature, we'll get into exactly what that means. But if we're really honest with what police officers have done in these communities, take New York City, for example. In 1992, prior to Rudy Giuliani becoming mayor of New York, there were about 2,400 murders in New York City every single year, 2,400, most of which were black and Hispanics. Rudy Giuliani runs as a Republican in the city of New York on a anti-crime platform, wins, pro-police platform, doubles the amount of police on the streets in New York City. Now, for a lot of young people out here that might have visited New York City as a tourist, you do not remember New York City in the 80s or 90s. You don't. It was a horror show. Now that if you, The fact that New York City in the last 10 years has been this area where you can walk at night, that was not the case in, in the 1990s. Rudy Giuliani increases the police presence. Murders in the black and Hispanic community went from 2,400 a year down to about 300 a year. That's 2,100 black and Hispanic lives that were saved on the streets, many of which are innocent bystanders that were being caught in other parts of crime in New York City. You extrapolate that over a decade, over two decades, you're talking anywhere between 50 to 60,000 black and Hispanic people that were able to live quiet and peaceable lives and have children because of an increased police presence. And this is the unspoken thing that we need to talk about in our country, which is actually if you're able to have a significant law enforcement presence that represents the community that they are tasked and this is the other thing is that in a lot of these communities, these are black police officers. In Philadelphia, for example, they're a black majority police, police force. And, and same in Baltimore, that you're actually able to bring down crime and bring up wages and create more peaceful communities. But this idea of defunding the police or abolishing the police, I can't even begin to tell you how incredibly foolish and dangerous this is for all Americans, especially for lower and middle income in individuals. So if that's their stated position on their website, which it is, uh, to abolish or defund the police and to reallocate the funding and all this, then unfortunately a byproduct of that is more black and brown people will die in this country. And I'm not, I'm not okay with that. Uh, and I, I think it's actually immoral, and I think it's completely and totally repulsive. And so, and as a final point on this, you want to think, you want to fix things structurally. Always go back to the Bible, right? So, the, I think this is a spiritual crisis more than anything else. And the Bible has a playbook to how to live quiet and peaceable lives, as it says in First Timothy. I talked about this in my RNC speech, where I kind of did the. Yeah, I was awesome. I said in order I was to live, screaming at the TV when he did it. By the way, yeah, I'll tell you that right now. I put it in there. I said we need to be able to create a government that allows us to live quiet and peaceable lives. So essentially, not Portland, right? So, um, <laughs> so, and I, I think that this is really. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And some of it, by the way, is legitimately a, a grievance against some public policy that was passed. And some of it is just because we have fed into a bad culture is the fact that 77% of black youth grow up without a stable father in the home is a moral tragedy in our country. And this is also one of the stated goals of their website, which is the deterioration of the Western prescribed nuclear family. I mentioned it earlier. They're already doing that. I mean, 77% of black young kids grow up without a father figure in the home. 
So what does that do for black young men? They have no, they have no role model to aspire to. By the time they turn eight, nine, or 10, unfortunately, the strongest man on the street which sometimes ends up being a gangbanger. They end up in, you know, basically um, trying to personify his actions. So by the time they're 11 or 12, they're involved in some form of community. Or for a young lady, she has no person who she aspires to go marry to, right? So that's, that, that, she has no person, like, I want to go marry someone like my father, so that's missing. So who does she go out and seek? She tries to seek at a very young age, unfortunately 12, 13, 14 years old in the black community in some of these urban uh, areas that are very, you know, stricken by these tragedies, they go forth and try to find, of course, the strongest men in the community, which unfortunately we know the law of hierarchies ends up being people that have the most amount of force, and that ends up being people that are involved in the criminal activities. And you extrapolate that over a couple generations, you have exactly what's happening today, which is, I think, a complete and total tragedy. I agree with that. But if we're talking about repairing, it's the opposite. It's not destroying the Western prescribed nuclear family. It's rebuilding the Western prescribed nuclear family. It's, it's telling black fathers and all fathers, by the way, it's not. And I want to be very clear. This is not just a singular black epidemic in our country, that in white families, the divorce rate is increasing, that fatherlessness rate in all communities is increasing, Hispanic community as well. So I don't want to just make it one you know, community or race specific. But it's, I want to be very clear. Single mothers are American heroes, and they should be raised up as such. However, every statistic shows that a single mother has an exponentially harder job to raise children, produce an income, and be able to keep their kids out of institutional poverty. It's just the way it is. And the, secondly, we should be just as harsh in our condemnation of cowardly men that have this kind of drive-by fatherhood where they impregnate women and just leave. They, they should be challenged and confronted right. whenever they have this sort of lifestyle. Because I can't think of anything more cowardly than to do that and just leave mothers with the complete and total responsibility of raising these children. So the conversation needs to be both on both sides of that. And the failure to do so, I think, has been resulted in some of exactly some of the um, very real problems that exist specifically in uh, the urban parts of our country. Yeah, and my wife and I love you so much, Charlie. For that's one aspect that we really love you about you. We love a lot of things, but that especially is the open voice about abortion. Because re here, reality of it is, is that and I'll get very personal here. You know, my wife and I, uh, we want to adopt children, and we've been trying. Yeah. You know, we want to adopt a lot of children. And um, it's incredible to me how hard that process it's is. Unbelievable. And yet, it's so easy to throw these babies away. It should be easier to adopt than abort. And, and that should be a very simple statement, right? I mean, there are millions of people on the waiting list right now to adopt children in our country. And they have to go through incredibly expensive oh, and yeah. arduous interview process. You know this. And yet, and this is something that really is incredible, that we have a million abortions a year in this country. 98.6 of all abortions are done for socioeconomic reasons. So they're not done because of rape, incest, or life of the mother. Those are the exceptions. There's real, legitimate differences of opinion in all sorts of communities on that. I think there's widespread opinion that abortion shouldn't be a form of birth control. I think that's ridiculous. I think that if abortion is just a form of contraception, then you are taking innocent life for a very specific purpose of just inconvenience. And if it's not your DNA, it's not your body, and I think as soon as that deoxyribonucleic acid is created in that moment that science still cannot explain, it's just kind of a, a dark area where there's still so much, where that sperm and egg meet, something so special happens that only those of us that believe in God can explain that away. And that, that kind of combination will never happen again. And so that's the uniqueness of life. Jeremiah, and I think it's Jeremiah 29, 13, I could be wrong on that, where it says, I knew you before you were in the womb. It's that idea that we are all formed uniquely and that formation may never happen again. And here's the other question though, is if, we're, if we don't get that question right, which is the protection of the innocent, what other questions are we getting wrong, right? So if we can't get that very elemental thing of when life begins and what do we do for those that can't protect themselves, 
then it just then you see I think it's actually a tributary, right? I think it's it's actually the top of the stream, and that's where you start to get all these other incredible moral injustices that happen. So for example, if you have a million abortions a year, that kind of moral kind of violation of God's compact with us, and all of a sudden child sex trafficking starts to pop up even more. Then all of a sudden all these other sins start to become normalized, right? And so make no mistake that once you indulge yourself as a culture in this kind of repetitive cycle of sin, it knows no bounds, right? Hell is a bottomless pit. We know that. And so I, I think that it's actually one of the most, if not the most important conversation. And I also want to make something very clear. And I say this every time I talk about the life issue. Here's what, something I think that Christians need to do a better job of, is we need to be more compassionate and we need to be more understanding of women that have had abortions. They yes. are not the enemy at all. And I, I think that it's wrong when people have this condemnation message. I do not have that same sort of tolerance for abortionists, the people that practice abortion, because they know better. They see the ultrasounds. In order to perform an abortion, they have to actually find the human being and suck it up. It's unbelievable. If you haven't seen the videos of it, you should, because it's happening a million times a year, and it will make you think a lot differently what's happening and where your kind of moral lines are drawn. But for young women, a lot of them are not given the opportunity to look at an ultrasound. They're not, they don't understand really what is happening. And quite honestly, the statistics show the, the, mental, uh, the mental health issues, suicide, the physical issues, the spiritual issues that come after that. And so my suggestion is if you're a pro-life advocate out there, awesome, thank you. But as much time as you're spending on the abolishing of abortion, spend around two other things, adoption and also having compassion and healing for women that have had abortions because only the gospel can make those individuals whole. So. Yeah, amen, amen. So I, I want to play a little game with you, okay? Oh, it'll, be, it'll be fun. So I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw out a phrase or maybe a word or a sentence, and then I'm going to have you go for it, right? I'm wow. Gonna, uh, here we go. We're going to do that, okay? I'm going to tell you that, all right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Let's try it. Okay, so let's do this. Um, and these are phrases that Christians say. Okay. Sometimes even pastors. So let's throw out a few phrases, okay? Here's the first one. Um, I don't know how a Christian can vote for President Trump because he's an immoral man. Yeah. I hear this quite often. Um, yeah. So, so look, I'm a supporter of the president. I'm a friend of the president. I want to make that very clear. Um, I've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. He's been very good to me. He, had, he, he asked me to open up his convention, which was pretty incredible. And, and I'm also a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. So first of all, let's just come from the admission we're all sinners, right? And then I also want to just come, and I want to just extend a little bit of a rope here, I can understand why, on its surface, it's very confusing why a three times married, twice divorced billionaire playboy from New York might be someone that <laughs> might be hard for an evangelical Christian to be able to. I, I get it. Like, I, I, I do. I, I, trust me. But let's go a step deeper. Let's actually be, let's have some wisdom, not just superficial back and forth, because we're all sinners, right? And, and we're, God uses people all throughout the Bible for very different reasons. I mean, the, the teaching of Samson is one in particular. I can't even use, I can't even say the, the, the story of Samson in front of a, a, I have to change the words of the story of Samson. Let's put it that way. Yep. If I was talking to an eight-year-old, right? Samson in the bed of a prostitute, God comes upon him and says, go, go take the jaw of a donkey and go kill a thousand Philistines, right? It's not exactly the easiest story to, it's not Noah's Ark, okay? So let's just put it that way. So, David too. David, right? And all throughout the Bible, so we're all sinners, right? And I, I think we all agree, this is a biblical truth, which is truth, that God can use anyone for any purpose at any time, and God can have a calling on people's lives. Okay, so for me, the life issue, let's just have an honest conversation about it. If you agree that there's a tragedy happening in this country of a million abortions a year, 60 million plus abortions since Roe versus Wade, who's been the most pro-life president in American history? Well, he's sitting in the Oval Office right now. 
the, most pro the first president to speak at the March for Life, right, to put Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, to challenge the uh, $500 million a year that we give to Planned Parenthood to continue this abortion practice in our country. Also, there's four people running for the executive branch. There's uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Harris, um, uh, Mike Pence, and Donald Trump. So out of all four of them, only one of them is an evangelical Christian that is really effusive in, in his faith is Mike Pence. You're also, he's also on the take of two. Don't forget that, right? And Mike Pence prays over the president every single day. Mike Pence has brought more pastors in the Oval Office than any other person in the executive branch in the history that is a documented record. It's a very important thing, right? Remember, we elect both a president and a vice president. It's also really important that we're not just electing two people. You're electing an entire comprehensive worldview, right? You want to elect, in my opinion, a president that has standing with the state of Israel. Paul says very clearly, bless the Jews. The standing of Israel is, is a biblical mandate. It's also very good for our country in a lot of different ways, geopolitically and otherwise, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights, canceling the Iran deal, negotiating peace between Israel and the UAE. I mean, that's literally the hardest deal that an individual could possibly make. I mean, it's literally the impossible deal, right? Between the United Arab Emirates, which was involving in boycott divestment sanctions, and the state of Israel. And for those of you that have not been to Israel, I cannot tell you how important it is for the kingdom of God, for the state of Israel to continue, for a very, very specific archaeological reason, by the way. You know there's never been an archaeological discovery that contradicts with the Bible, ever, never, and never will, because the Bible is truth. And the more excavations we do in Israel, the more it affirms the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Israel ceases to exist and the Palestinian Authority takes over Israel, they will do what they've always done, which they did on the Temple Mount, is destroy all the artifacts. They will destroy the archaeological evidence. They, they have and they will. And so just for us that are trying to prove the authenticity and the historical truth of the Bible, my goodness, the state of Israel is important for us, right? Because when you go to Capernaum and you see exactly where Jesus Christ called his disciples, when you're able to go on the Sea of Galilee and see where Jesus Christ walked on water, when you're able to walk in the city of David and you're able to see, like, this is where John 4 happened, or this is where Jesus healed somebody at the pool of Siloam. There's another, yeah, there's Bethany and there's, I'm forgetting the word. Yes, exactly. And so... That's, that, that's not insignificant, right? So that's the Bible in technicolor. So if you kind of look, work backwards, you say the most important book ever to exist is the Holy Bible. Well, shouldn't the place where the Bible took place be something that we care about protecting? And yet the three times married, twice divorced billionaire playboy from New York is the guy that's protecting the place where the Bible happened more so than any other president ever. And the answer is yes, because that's how God works. And so this idea that, for example, you have George W. Bush, who's a Bible-believing Christian, and I believe a decent man, who had far less courage on these issues than President Donald Trump. Maybe, maybe God was calling a street fighter for a time like this, and I think that's exactly what happened. And because George W. Bush never spoke at the March for Life. George W. Bush put John Roberts on the Supreme Court that said casinos essential, church is not in the recent decision of Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas. George W. Bush never moved the embassy to Jerusalem, did not recognize the Golan Heights, and was unable to negotiate any sort of peace deal on behalf of the people of Israel. This is really interesting stuff. It takes nuance, right? And so I encourage everyone watching on the live stream and here in this audience, look a level deeper, right? I'm not saying to you have to justify or qualify any sort of things that you would consider to be, you know, morally questionable. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that God calls us to be disciples of all nations, nation being a very important part of that statement. And if we're honest with ourselves, the most important thing you can do in your life is to commit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The second most important thing is to make sure you can do the first thing. And you have a government that, that appoints judges that believe that, that upholds the church's right to assemble and religious liberty and freedom, which is completely under attack. You guys are experiencing this in California. If the opposition wins in November, your sitting U.S. senator will basically be running the attorney general's office. And you've seen how much they are in, let's just say, their impartial view, uh, I should say partial view, 
of churches and casinos and cannabis dispensaries here in this state, persecuting people like Jack Hibbs, Rob McCoy, John MacArthur, and you have a wonderful pastor here going out of their way to do that. And so uh, I'm happy to defend. It's very consistent for me to be a Bible-believing evangelical Christian and also a friend and a supporter of President Donald Trump. Yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll go on record in saying this. I think he's going to go down as one of the best, if not the best president we've ever had in the union. And I, and, I, and, I say that, and I say that for one very important reason. I say that because, and we were talking about this. Um, it's been amazing to talk to Charlie's girlfriend. She's just an intelligent, just smart. I, now I know where Charlie gets it from. So anyway, I'll just, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, we were talking about language and how language morphs and people hear words come forth or they read words and they take it one way. But the real core of where a person's heart is at is always going to be in what they do. Trump says this. Trump says that. He's a racist. He's this. He's that. Historically black Bible, historically black colleges. Record funding, we, yeah. we, I could go on forever about all the things that he's done. Yeah. Okay, let's throw another phrase out. Oh, okay. Shall we talk about this? Sure. Okay. People have come up to me and said this. Pastor James, please pray for me because my husband and I are overwhelmed. We want to save as much money as we can to send our kids to an Ivy League school. Will you pray for us? Yeah, let's get into this. I'm happy to. So, um, look... I, I, talk, I talk about this a lot, so just as a background, I run an organization on 2,000 high school and college campuses across the country. I visit more college campuses and speak on them than any other person in the Christian conservative circuit. So I can speak from authority on this issue, have 160 people on staff, and all we do is college campus organizing. I never went to college, though, so I, I, I did this whole thing, so I want to make sure that this, so I Praise can talk God. from absolute authority of how you can succeed without going to college. So, um, so it's the, kind of the great irony of the entire thing. Um, I'm on my gap year, right? So um, it's been a long gap year. So, so it's quite a gap year. Look, I'm going to say a couple things that are very provocative, and I'm going to work towards proving and convincing them. But I'm going to start with the provocative. We have way too many kids going to college, way too many kids going to college in this country. And that four-year college is not the pathway to success it used to be. And I'm going to prove it to you. 59% of kids that go to college graduate, 41% drop out. How many of the kids that have gone to college, how many people you know that went to college that dropped out? Probably a lot. We have way too many kids going to college, way too many. In fact, we need more people to take gap years, be apprenticeships, HVAC, mechanical engineers, police officers, firefighters, entrepreneurs, plumbers, you name it. We need to stop demeaning the trades and start lifting up the trades. There's real value and dignity in those careers, and we've almost overly glamorized this idea of getting a, a four-year college degree, which is no more than, I think, a certificate in a lot of different ways. So then the people that graduate, out of the 59% of people that graduate, 44% of them, according to the New York Federal Reserve, are employed with jobs that do not require college degrees. So they, they, get, they, they, they borrow money they don't have to study things that don't matter to go find jobs that don't exist, and they just go work in low, low minimum wage jobs. So they could have done that in the first place. One of the main reasons why we are seeing unrest in our country, one of the main reasons why middle class incomes and middle class net worth has flatlined is because there is this allure that if your kid goes to college, it's going to be a gateway to their prosperity and their success. It's a complete and total lie. It's not true. Now, if, if your kid is able to reasonably survive college financially, not get indoctrinated to hate America, and study something that has a very specific skill to get them a career, then that might be a good option. And that's the exception, not the rule. Large and part-times middle-class families that are earning anywhere between seventy dollars to $80,000 a year with four kids, it's still, it's still very you know, tough to get by even with that middle-class family with all the rising price of health care and housing and taxes and all of that. 
These families are going hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with all their kids together going to college where these kids will be in a form of indentured servitude for the next couple decades paying off bad debt to just get a job that they arguably could have gotten without that college degree. So the question is, how do we handle this and how do we process this? Well, a couple different things. Number one, we need to think much more creatively about higher education. And we also need to be much more critical of higher education. We are way, way too accepting of this. Number one, if you have a kid in college right now and they have not given you a price adjustment for a tuition for tuition for a Zoom call this semester, you're getting defrauded by university. It's that simple. It's that simple. You're being defrauded. The fact that you have now have a WebEx Skype call with a professor and you're not in an actual lecture hall to meet people or meet that professor and they have not adjusted tuition for that, then they're just, they, 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 they would be shut down by federal regulators for defrauding their customers. That's, and they're not. They're not adjusting tuition. That's number one. Number two, it's this. How do we create good people? And that's a really important question. In fact, I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves as a culture. How do we create good people? And we're honest with it. College is a really bad job of this, really bad job. High school seniors are way more mature than college seniors. They just are. Why? Because their parents are around and they have some sort of responsibility that they have to endure. College seniors are typically more confused, more in debt, less certain, less convicted, less confident to go into the world. So here's what college does a lot of the times. And there's some exceptions. There's some great colleges out there, Liberty University, Hillsdale, or some great schools. However, they're the exception, not the rule. Colleges do not create stronger or tougher people. They, inst they instead create bitter people that try, to cre that try to remove tough things around them. It's very important. So what college should be is actually challenging you so much that it breaks you to be a stronger person, be able to, be able to carry a greater load, be a tougher individual. Hmm. It doesn't do that. Instead, it's let me tell you how to remove things that bother you around you. So it's the exact opposite, right? And so you think about it, these young people, a lot of them, are being taught, if you don't like something, here's how to protest and how to remove it. Well, hold on, what? That's not, that's not the way anything in the West works. The way the West works, especially between ages 18, 19, and 20, it's we want to find your breaking point. And then once you do, you actually, we know this metaphysically too, we know this through weightlifting, right? You actually become stronger after you find your new record and you get so sore and then eventually you build muscle mass. That's a truth, it's a laws of nature, it's also applicable to how we create young people. When it's the opposite, your muscles atrophy, and you create very weak and unhappy people that, by the way, predominantly populate our urban cities such as San Francisco, L.A., Portland, and Seattle, which they don't own anything by the time they earn 30. They're $60,000 into debt. They're working minimum wage jobs. They are miserable for good reason. I get it, because they've been told an absolute societal lie that you have to go to these schools in order to project your incomes up in the future. And so you might say, well, what, do I, what, what, what should my child do? Dismiss from your vocabulary that that certificate is a gateway to success. It might be, but it's not an assured one. In fact, it's actually a higher likelihood it's a gateway to debt and misery. Number two, ask your kid why are they going to college, not where are they going to college. Very important. The question always, and I stop people, they say, hey, where are you going? No more. Say, why are you going? Start from the default position that you're not going and have to make the argument you are. If you cannot write a two-page essay as to why you're going to college, you shouldn't go. It's that simple. You can write a two-page essay why you're going to go take a mortgage out on a $300,000 home, right? Or go buy a $30,000 car. The same sort of consumer approach that we take to anything that's expensive and requires debt should also have with higher education. And by the way, there's other options out there, community college, technical school, online learning, that I encourage all of you to pursue. Because I'm, I'm a pro-learning individual, obviously. I just wish college did that. And that's the other part of it, is that they're not even learning the great works that built our civilization. That's right. I mean, there's a great quote, and it's just perfect. I was walking Stanford University, and it was, just, it was just a hotbed of foolishness, right? 
And it was just people that were bitter, arrogant, and deceitful, which is the evil triad, right? You can't have three characteristics mixed together that could create something more dangerous than bitter, uh, arrogant, and deceitful people. And so I thought to myself, why is this the case? And it was just so perfect. It's a verse. You would know it. It's like, without God, there is no wisdom. I said, there's no God here, so there's no wisdom. Of course. Right. It's so simple. It's absolutely right. It's, absolutely and it, it, it's right. Proverbs 16, 16, which says that more than gold or silver seek wisdom and learning. That's exactly right. That's and right. these universities, they've removed God, and they, 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 they say things that they think sound so incredibly enlightened, and it's just incredibly foolish. Like, actually, there's a book that predated you that has said things quite more meaningful than you. It's called the Holy Bible. And so, but, and this idea that, oh, well, my kid's going to learn the great works of Western society. Well, they probably won't. And then the other thing is this, and I, I'm, I'm going to run this test case, and I know it to be true. Find me 10 kids that go to pretty good schools, right? So it could be Pepperdine, it could be Stanford, it could be UCLA, UC, USC, and track their life over five years and get the combined tuition cost and the debt burden that they have to incur. So let's just take uh, Stanford, for example, right? About $70,000, $80,000 a year if you count tuition, room and board, travel, textbooks, extra costs, meals, all that. So it's like, let's say $80,000 a year times four, four years, $320,000, right? So that's, that's a lot of money. Most families can't, can't tolerate it. And these kids are taking out six-figure student loans made possible by the federal government, right? To go study, I don't know, North African lesbian poetry or something. I don't know. So, and so. <laughs> I love it. So, it's true. And so it's probably a real class. And then and so then you, you have a test case of those 10 people and then find me 10 people that are motivated, that want to learn, give them three hundred and twenty thousand dollars, put it in a money market account, let it mature over four years, have them get a minimum wage job, listen to my podcast, watch PragerU and listen to Victor Davis Hanson for four years. Tell me who's better, better able to succeed, has better character and who has a higher net worth. That three hundred twenty thousand dollars, even in moderate money market, money managed accounts, just buying, buying indexes, which is very, very simple you know, buying that 320,000 will probably be 380 to 390,000, probably even more if the president gets reelected, probably plus 400,000. Yeah. Way and, more. And you put those 10 people up against the 10 people that go to these other schools that are negative $100,000 in debt. They have very little confidence. They're filled with bad ideas and they have to go find a job where these other four people already have four years of job experience underneath them. They might've got a skill and they have no debt. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how did this, why are we letting this happen? We should have time out and say no more fire alarm. Like this is a really bad idea what we're doing here. We are sending kids to college to be filled with bad ideas, incur so much debt, to then go motivate them to go burn down our entire civilization. It is not a necessary path. It's not. Liberate yourself from that. You can get all of the knowledge that created Western society for free on the internet, from Hillsdale, from Liberty, from Victor Davis Hanson, from PragerU. The lectures are there. The thinkers are there. Be autodidactic. Go search it for yourself. And then you can go find people that possess that wisdom, like your pastor, and ask really good questions. It's not, it's not up to the university to do that. But I want to make something very clear. If your life ambition is to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and you have a very specific path to get that certification and a skill, then college is the answer for you. It is. Just make sure you could do it financially reasonable. And don't go endlessly into debt and just... Here's, here's another good thing. If you do not know what you're studying, do not go to college. No, seriously. There's, this is that, you know, 60 plus percent of people that enter college go without an undeclared major. That's, that's a really bad reason to go to college. You should go to college saying, I'm going to graduate in the lowest time possible. This is what success looks like. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to get that certification. Then I'm going to enter the job market. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we do this at, at the church. It's kind of unofficial, but as people go into college for professional reasons, whether it be attorneys, doctors, whatever, um, if I can get my hands on them, we take them through a counseling process. Yeah. 
get ready so that they don't get deprogrammed and and brainwashed. Yeah, and they're and, really um, good at it. Yeah. Oh, they're uh, listen. They're excellent. And when they're they smooth. know what to expect, when our people know what to expect because they've been given the foundation, and then all you guys that are saving all that money for your children, I mean, imagine teaching them how to fail, learn from the failure, and grow from that first business loan that you give them. They're going to be successful. It's 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 a it's a great piece of advice. Okay. We're gonna take some questions now, all right? Now here's the rule, okay? For those of you that are in the foyer, we'll ha we're gonna have a microphone back there. For those of you that are here, the microphone is right here. No statements. Once again, you gotta get right down to it. It's gotta be a direct question. If it's not, I'm gonna use my loud Middle Eastern mouth <laughs> to shut you down, okay? And it's, uh, it's kind of important, okay? Because we only have about 20 minutes and we wanna be able to take at least uh, three, four, maybe even five questions, all right? So let's do this. No statements, once again. Um, and, and if any of you, like, tell Charlie, take this message to the president or anything like that, I'm going to ask him, don't take the message to the president, okay? Depends what it yeah, is. No. <laughs> all right, well, fine. Bring it on. Anyway, um, let's do this. Let's take some questions. Hi, how are you? Good, um, how are thanks you? for coming. Uh, my name is Nick Carbonaro. I actually teach at Long Beach City College. Oh, awesome. Right down the street. And our, no, no, no. Our school of CTE has the most full-time enrolled students at Long Beach City College. And uh, we have the highest success rate of students. So career and technical education. Okay, great. Yeah, that, that, that's, yeah. that's a reason to go. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Honored that you're here, by the Thank way. Thank you. What you're Glad doing you. is perfect. I mean, that's what we preach. I show your PragerU videos all the oh, time. Oh, thanks. So, um, my question is this, you know, there's the, there's the lyric from the, um, the song that says, uh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Right. And, uh, it says, do you think God is using this time of persecution, uh, to do just that, um, such as spread the word of God globally, awaken people to the political parties that stand for God in life and to get people involved in church and other activities that they never would have embarked on because they would have been watching the Lakers or something like that. Yeah. Um, now they're not. So, um, so well, do you so think the, the time of persecution, basically the time of persecution has actually opened our hearts to, oh, shoot, we are under attack by the enemy. Oh, I, shoot, we are. I, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I think it's too early to tell. We could be on the, on the verge of a, a next great awakening or a persecution that's just beginning and that is going to be a chapter the likes of which we've never seen. But it's all on us. It's just basically what is the church willing to do right now? And every single church in the country should immediately open its doors right now, bar none. I don't care what some city government local person tells you. It's that simple open your doors. And if they won't, then the persecution will continue. And at least from my objective analysis, there are people that are losing faith in Christianity by how lack of, how little boldness they are seeing in Christianity yeah, right now. True. And so I just want to be clear that we are losing respect to the searching and the seekers. If they're like, if they're not opening their doors and all the protesters are in the streets, then maybe they actually don't believe what they say they do. And I hear this all the time. So and so if you don't open your doors right now, and if you do not believe in this truth and you don't believe in professing it, I think we're missing that opportunity. Right. However, who am I to say if this actually might be one of the greatest things that ever happens in Christianity? I'm always open-minded and obviously, God willing, prayerful enough to see that. However, I'm also, I'm not one to just say that that's an excuse to do nothing. I think that this gets conflated sometimes where Christians abdicate action with faith and I, I want to be very clear that having faith that an ultimate victory is not an excuse to do nothing. In fact, it says very clearly, you don't do good works to get saved. You do good works because you are saved. So the fact that we are saved, we should be doing more than ever before because we are born new in Jesus Christ. Incredible. What a blessing, huh, guys? So, so this, is, this is kind of funny, you know. 
Um, Charlie's been such a blessing to me, and uh, yeah, I love him so much. And uh, you know, we we put a lot of thought into a way that we could probably uh, you know bless Charlie. You know, how can we do something nice for him? And so, you know, I consider Charlie a warrior. I mean, I really do. I, I think he's a warrior, and um, he is people people like Charlie. People like Charlie is one of the main reasons why I'm in the ministry today to produce amazing men like him that are going out there swinging the sword with me in the trenches, going for it and making a huge difference. So we wanted to get you something. So oh, we got you, you something kind of cool. Okay. I, my wife's going to bring it out here. And it's very simple, but what oh, it is, is it's a you. Bible that's got your name engraved on you, it. You know what's so funny is I was going to go purchase a new Bible, yeah, so this well, is the answer to prayer. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's funny. I was praying. I was like, Lord, put something on my heart. But I want you to understand you. why this is so special to us to give to him, because this is the sword that we swing, right? This is the tool that we use. Every, in case you don't recognize what I told you at the very beginning of this time, Charlie is an avid student of the word of God. How do I know that? Because of the words that come out of his mouth when he swings the sword every day, whether it be on national TV, whether it be in front of the president, not in front of the president, whether it be at the RNC, whether it be a one-on-one -on -one conversation, he's swinging the sword. And it's the responsibility of pastors like me who are in my position to defend men like him, to be able to do the work that he does. So every time that Charlie opens up that Bible, I want him to be reminded of the fact that he is loved, that he is defended, yes. that he is being fought for yes. as he swings Thank it. You. And we love him. We're praying for him. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to pray for Charlie. We're going to ask for God's blessing upon him. And by the way, he's an amazing girlfriend. I, I cannot wait. I tell you what, no pressure. I can't wait till they get married yes. because, because I can't wait to see be what God good. is good, what God is going to do through this powerhouse. I mean, the vision that God's given her for what she's going to do in the education field, is, it's just mind-boggling. So I'm so excited about it. So let's pray for them right now. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for Charlie, Lord, and we thank you for the call you've placed on his life. We thank you for the anointing, Lord, the power that you've given him. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, you would protect him from head to toe. Cover him, Lord, from right to left, Lord, back and forth. Touch him, Lord, and Lord, use him in a way that is so impacting and powerful that, Lord, people won't even know where it came from, that they would just recognize it has to be the Spirit of God, that it can come from no other place. We thank you for his girlfriend. We thank you for the work you're doing in her and through them. We pray that you would use them, protect them spiritually, emotionally, financially, physically, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for using him at such a time as this to be able to uh, swing the sword and to defend. Put it upon our hearts to pray for him, to love him as our brother is out there fighting the good fight. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give Charlie a hand, you guys. you guys.